Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to, pro to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus... He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Because of Jesus, and we might say only because of Jesus, uh, there is always hope. As long as there is life, as long as there is breath, as long as there is the time to choose, there's always hope, even for those who might seem hopeless. Regardless, regardless how dim the path, how bleak the way, how, how black the sin, there's always a way back, a way up. A way to redemption because of Jesus Christ. That's, that's why the message of Christ is the gospel. That's why the word gospel is good news. It's good news because that is available to everybody in Jesus Christ. And I know sometimes there are those, perhaps some of us here this morning, that might feel that we are somewhat off the reservation here with respect to all the blessings Christ offers. That yes, he offers remission of sins, a redemption of all things wrong in life, all corruption, all iniquity, all sin, a reconciliation back to God, a wonderful standing with him, and a tremendous hope of heaven. And yet, if you knew what I have done, where I've been, what I've made of my life, if you knew the hole I had dug for myself, these promises are for someone else, anybody else, but not for me. It's easy to get yourself to thinking that you're too far gone to come back. But even the prodigal in Luke 15, story of the prodigal son, even from the pig pen, came to himself and realized, yes, he could go back. And he learned quickly after going back that, yes, he was going to be received. There is reclamation. There is redemption. There is reconciliation. There is a way home. 
there's a good news of this gospel of Christ. There is hope for the hopeless. And if you struggle with that, I would remind you of a few things this morning in our brief time this morning. I would remind you, first of all, of our Lord's own apostles. We think of them as such strong and stalwart people. Uh, those, because of their word of redemption, turned the whole world upside down by the conviction of their faith and the truth of their message. And yet, they weren't at the beginning what they became later on. Uh, they weren't a group of seminary students that Christ had uh, somehow gotten through the portal into his group from somebody else's. And these were a ragtag group of men who seemed to have nothing good going on in their lives. You've got Peter and James. You've got John and Andrew. You've got these men who are just ordinary, good men, but fishermen. They weren't versed in scripture. They weren't those that anyone would look up to as an authority in religious matters. And Jesus chose them as his own apostles, ordinary fishermen. And you know John. If I were to ask you for a description of John, you'd say, well, he's, he's the apostle of love. Uh, the gospel of John, the 21st, uh, 21 chapters of that book are filled with expressions of love of God to us. God so loved the world, John 3.16. Our need to love one another. By this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one for another, John 13. And in 1 John, John speaks of love as if we should just understand it at face value. By default position of God's very existence, how that we learn God from Learn love from seeing God. And we love one another based upon that love that God had for us. And yet John, the apostle of love, there was a time in Jesus' ministry when he was still becoming the John we know him to have become. When he saw some that were against his own. Some opposed to Christ. A different group. And he he asked the Lord to call down thunder from heaven to destroy these enemies. We don't remember John as the apostle of thunder and vengeance. We remember him as the apostle of love because he became more than what he started out to be. And in that group of apostles, you've got Matthew, the tax collector, taking money from the Jews and giving it to the Romans and in many cases of tax collectors, they would graft off from the top for their own purse. They weren't known as an ethical group at all. And you had alongside him among the apostles, Simon the Zealot, who was willing to give his life in insurrection and even terrorism against the very idea of what, what Matthew was doing. And yet they worked side by side as apostles because they became more than they were. The, the Apostle Peter, well, you know him from the books of First and Second Peter. You know him in the book of Acts as being so instrumental to the church's beginning in Acts 2, the first Gentile convert, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so many times when Peter talks, 
his foot is in his mouth. He's saying things he shouldn't at the worst possible time. One time he is so wrong in what he says that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. And yet Peter becomes the Peter we know him to have become. The one standing on Pentecost Day. And this after, just a few days earlier, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now there's a way back. And you might be thinking, well, well what about Judas? I'm glad you brought him up because that's, that's a good point you made. What about Judas? Is there anyone here knowing the person that Jesus was and the power that Jesus' gospel has always had? Any one of us who believes that if Judas had come back to the Lord in penitence that he wouldn't have been forgiven? Peter was. All the apostles who at the arrest of Christ forsake our Lord and, and leave him there. They were forgiven. The only reason Judas was not is because Judas, he gave up on, on the Lord. Yes, he was upset by what he had done. But what did he do? He went out and hanged himself. And that shows less of his obsession with his own sin and more with his lack of faith in the person Jesus was. Basically, by doing what he did, he was saying, I don't think Jesus would take me back. There's no way back from what I've done. But don't we know that if Judas had come back, he would have been received? I can't find any passage in any part of the Bible, any suggestion in any part of the New Testament that gives me any indication that if he'd come back, he wouldn't have been reclaimed and forgiven. Well, after Jesus has died now, his body was laid to rest in Joseph's tomb. And as he came, by, came to, to life, Again, because of God's resurrection of his own body from that tomb, he spends some 40 days with his apostles talking about things concerning the kingdom of heaven and then ascends back to heaven. Not long after that, the church begins. And who were those who were the first charter members of the Lord's church? Uh, mention has been made the last few days of dear sister Trumpeter and how far she goes back with this congregation. Just a few days after this congregation of 29th and Yale, what used to be, started. But here you've got the original members of the church, period, on Pentecost Day, Acts chapter 2. The charter members of the Lord's church there at Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. Some 3,000 of them. And who were they? Who were they? Well, they were devout people of every nation under heaven, Jewish people. That's, that's their nationality. That's where they've come from. But who were they? 
Well, just listen to what Peter says to them. He talks about how they, those he's talking to, these soon-to-be members of the church, how they with wicked hands had slain the Lord of glory, Jesus the Christ. He says to them, let the whole house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now our problem is oftentimes we categorize sins in nice little arrangements and folders and bundles and baskets. Uh, we have ugly sins and some that aren't so very bad. Uh, the blackest of black sins and then those innocuous, benign sins that we sometimes commit. There are sins that will damn the soul and sins that aren't really that problematic. And from God's perspective, sin is sin, period. But if you go down that road, we sometimes sadly go down of categorizing sin. Can you imagine a worse one? A worse one than being guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. He came into the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Well, it didn't just not know him, it put him to death. And who put him to death? Well, it was you and me because he died for our sins. But at the time, who put him to death? Well, the Roman soldiers put in the nails, put him on the cross. Pilate pronounced him guilty, although Pilate knew he wasn't, tried to wash his hands of it. But who was crying, crucify him? It were those, many of them, there on Pentecost Day. Their hands were bloody. Their conscience was seared. And when Peter told that to them, understanding now by the miracles they were seeing and the prophecies they were understanding, that this one they had put to death was the very Messiah the prophets had promised. They cried out with their hearts now cut by the message of Peter. Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter doesn't say what many of us would think a person in that situation would say. Peter doesn't say, for everybody else there is hope. But not for you. you. You went one step too far. You killed Jesus. There's no coming back from that. Now Peter didn't say that, did he? He says repent. And be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission. The forgiveness of your sins. No wonder, a few verses later, we read the words, They that gladly received his word were baptized. Of course they gladly received the word. They thought there was no hope. But there was. Even for those who are guilty of killing our Lord. Now, sometimes we get caught in the back and forth as to whether the Jews killed Jesus. Well, at large, the nation of Israel, the Jews at large, didn't kill Jesus. But those Jews did. 
And those Romans did. And because of our sins, we did. But on that day of Pentecost, the Jews responsible had Peter telling them, you are responsible. They respond by asking, what shall we do? And they were told there's something they could do. They could come home. They could come back. And they gladly received the word, and they were baptized. Their souls were saved, and there was hope for them. Now, it wasn't long after that that the church begins. It grows. After all, why wouldn't it? Such a good message as that, such glad tidings as these. So many people want the message. They want to embrace the entire idea of reclamation, coming back to God by Christ. But not everybody sees it that way. One man in particular is mentioned. His name is Saul. We know him later as Paul the Apostle. But we first see him as Saul of Tarsus in the last part of Acts and chapter 7 where we are told of the first Christian martyr, a young servant of the church of Jerusalem by the name of Stephen who preaches a powerful lesson in the seventh chapter of Acts. If you ever want a good digested version of Old Testament history, just read the seventh chapter of Acts and Stephen's sermon. It's a masterpiece. But he comes to the same conclusion to the end that Peter has in Acts 2 about the fact that those he's speaking to, many of them are guilty of what's happened with Jesus. And they don't take it so well. They don't say, what shall we do? They pick up rocks and they stone Stephen to death. And there, one person's name is mentioned, Saul, who's there holding the coats of those who stone him. Language suggesting he's in full complicity. He's all in on what's happening. And as the next chapter, Acts 8, begins, it talks about the persecution that grows about this death of Stephen. Later on, Luke will refer to this as the persecution that rose about Stephen. It lasted, historians tell us, about seven years. It cost the life of about 2,000 Christians, all whose names largely are lost in New Testament texts. But one of those involved in the persecution, it was Saul, Saul, who was said in the early part of Acts 8 as, as one who is now making havoc of the church. He has letters of authority from the Jewish leaders giving him the right to, to barge into people's homes and drag them out against their will, to strip them of what they have and who they are, and even sometimes take their lives. The word murders is used in context like this in talking about Saul in the early days. You might remember the words of God spoken to Saul on Damascus Road. The words when Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And of course, by persecuting the Lord's people, Saul was persecuting the Lord himself. And much like those in Pentecost, how can you come back from that? Blood on his hands? Absolutely. Going in the wrong direction? No doubt about it. Guilty and wrong and lost and seemingly hopeless? There's Saul to a T. And yet, the Lord sends Ananias to talk to Saul. 
in Damascus. He's there, Saul is, for three days in anguish, fasting and praying and wondering, no doubt, what's to befall him, what's coming up next. Ananias is sent to him and tells him in our language now, what are you waiting for? The old King James says, why tarriest thou? What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and, and wash away your sins. What sins they were. But wash away your sins. That's what he did. And from that point on, Saul wasn't the Saul we knew him to be. It wasn't too long after that. His name was known as not Saul, but Paul. And he's the preacher we know him to be. The point of all of this, if there is hope for the apostles, if there is hope for those who killed Jesus, if there is hope for Saul, the persecutor of Christians, I don't care who you are, what you've done, how far you've fallen, there is a way back. As long as there is life and breath and time to choose and change, the gospel is powerful enough to, to make the worst of us into the best of us. And I say all of this just to simply say this last. You may be one of those this morning who think that hope is lost, there's no way back. Let me tell you personally, there is a way back. If this morning you're outside of Christ, not a Christian, thinking, I can't do that. I, I can't be forgiven. I can't live the right kind of life. Yes, you can. By Jesus' help, by the cleansing of Jesus' blood, with the teaching of Jesus' word and the help of Jesus' followers, yes, you can. Oh, I used to be a Christian, but I, I've gone the wrong way for too long. I, I don't think I can come back. They wouldn't have me anyway. That's not true. And yes, you can. As long as there's life and breath and time to choose and change, there's hope. And so, my friend, this morning, if you need to come, I bid you, I urge you, I beg you come as together we stand and sing.